thing. Hello, so um, I'm here for another episode of A Quest for Freedom, Our Conspiracy Reality with um, Kelly Vitry, who's a board certified trauma and emergency specialist. Um, uh, you, I believe you're part of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative and you've worked with a number of agencies, Kelly, have a number of government agencies um, over in America um, on that. And also you, you've, you've had various appearances on TV and radio, et cetera, as well, um, commenting on the, the, the current healthcare uh, policy. And I think you were, um, you, you've got a, uh, an MB in uh, from University of North Carolina, I believe. That's um, right. And then I attended, um, I attended the, uh, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard, okay. which a program I designed through the department, the School of Public Health at Harvard to develop people who are leaders for times of crisis. Right. Okay. And, and I think we might be in a bit of a, a time <laughs> of crisis for whatever, <laughs> for a number of reasons right now, mightn't we sort of thing. So, and, 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 I, and also it's worth mentioning as well. I think you said, you said as well, Kelly, because we can get into this a little bit later. You're one of the lead plaintiffs in the current legal action um against big tech is that that's correct isn't it i think i am i'm a co-plaintiff with president trump in a class yeah. action lawsuit against big tech specifically for censorship and for a violation of my first amendment right which is the right to free speech in america absolutely and i think you know it's actually i think it's it's quite actually connected with what we'll be talking about anyway which is basically um you know, around the current um, the current approach from a healthcare perspective to this Absolutely. pandemic, um, and I think um, I think it might be worth starting off from from the point of view of I know for me personally when this initially um, initially sort of started to like arise properly in the mainstream in early 2020, I think everyone was pretty fearful I remember you go, you go around the supermarket somebody would come around the other side and you'd be keeping away from them we didn't really know the extent to which there was a real danger etc we've had a long period since then obviously to realize you know the you know that actually in the real world it's not it's not quite that um uh, that that that's uh, quite as potent as 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 it might have seemed at, the, at that point. What what's your view and how the responses evolved over time from you know the initial response to to now? What's what's your what's your view on that, Kelly? Well, let me give a little bit of background, James, in terms of how I actually even got involved in in the response. Definitely, yeah, that'd be useful. Yeah, pandemic. Uh, I do have a background in public health, and I have quite a bit of experience managing large disasters, man-made and nature-made, including pandemics. I was, for example, I was uh, at the helm uh, of the healthcare response for Continental Airlines during the SARS uh, epidemic back in 2003. Uh, and I've led other large Fortune 100 companies and their employees and their families through some, some large disasters, including pandemics. But the reason I got involved really in the dialogue early on was because of this unprecedented response that I was seeing from public health, medical professionals in general, and the public to this pandemic when it first began. And I initially, there were some moments where I thought, am I missing something? You know, people are responding as if we're talking about a smallpox outbreak. 
or an Ebola uh, outbreak globally or something, which is not to say that I ever questioned whether or not COVID-19 was a real thing. I'm not some kind of a, quote, virus denier or something, but it's simply that I was seeing a response, a fear, a panic, a level of concern that was absolutely out of proportion to what I perceived and assessed the actual risk to be. And therefore I stepped up to the podium as it were on social media and elsewhere and used my platform in radio and television to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, people, let's, let's take a reasonable, measured, sensible approach. Let's start by actually assessing the real risk from this virus, and then let's plan our mitigation strategies accordingly. One of the, one of the mandates of public health is to look at how any mitigation scheme, whether you're talking about a lockdown or masks or social distancing or vaccinations, whatever, how it impacts the entire population not just an individual. So it's very different when I'm seeing someone one-on-one -on -one in a trauma or because of illness and I'm in that patient-physician interaction, they are my sole concern. But when I put on my public health hat, I am obligated to take a very different approach, a more global approach, have a wider purview. And I cannot make a choice to say, I'm going to do something that benefits just an individual, I have to look at the impact on the entire public. And I wasn't seeing that happening. I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're closing down schools? Why are we closing schools? Children, we know, are at essentially, fundamentally, zero risk from COVID. Why yeah, and, and, COVID? and Kelly, Kelly, just on that, just because just it's interesting, you know, the way I looked at it sort of early on, you know, I've, I've got the background, you know, that you have in public health, et cetera. But it seemed that there was sort of, it seemed relatively early on we started to understand it was um it was it was older people more vulnerable people people with comorbidities etc it seems like covid would, would would actually be really dangerous for these people if they fitted into those categories and it seemed that you know without being expert an expert it seemed that you know any approach should have been focused on that group of people, not on the remainder of the population. I mean, would you agree with that kind of assessment? Spot on. And fundamentally, yeah. if I had to summarize the, the fundamental error in the re response to this pandemic, James, it would be precisely that, that public health officials acted as if we were all at equivalent risk from this virus, when in fact we knew from the very, very beginning, by, by the second week of February, it was very clear that the people who were at significant risk were people in the older age groups, people over the age of 75, people who were living in residential communities, namely nursing homes or assisted living, and people with a very well-defined set of comorbidities, specifically obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. That was it. We also knew at the same time that children clearly were not becoming ill with it. And it became very obvious early on that not only did children, and when I say children, I mean healthy people under the age of 25, they not only were not becoming ill with it, but they were lousy vectors of it, meaning they didn't spread it significantly. And so we knew all of this early on, yet the people at the helm of the, of the response efforts 
we're painting it with a very broad brush and acting as if everyone was at equivalent risk and therefore everyone in the population should have the same response. When this was simply unwarranted, it wasn't based on a shred of science, and that is what I identified early on and really what got me into the game, as it were, and taking the positions that I have for the past 18 months. Yeah, and it's, it's, in, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, some of these things that, that, that sort of had their origins in last year, you know, whether it be, you know, masks and social distancing. And you look at what, what, what I find quite um, incredible is that th these things seem, seem to have been sort of, you know, almost rushed into, but then, but then subsequently to that, even where you, th there's no sort of science, I mean, not only is there no scientific studies around things like masks and social distancing, we actually have, I mean, you, you know, you may be able to shed a bit of light on this, but what I find in, in, in America, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you've got different states with different strategies, you know, depending upon the politics and depending upon the bit, and you actually look at it and you get this, there's no, you know, there's no real demonstration that lockdowns, masks, or any of these things are working where they're used more prevalently, you know, extensively than other places in the world where they're not really um, uh, adopted. With, without a doubt, and therefore it was preposterous that they kept going back and relying on quote models. Theoretically, we're going to use yeah. this model. I'm saying you don't need a model, people. We have real world data. We can actually look at Sweden. We can look in, in my country, in the United States, we can look at Texas and Florida, states that very early on jettisoned this silliness of masks and social distancing. By the way, I have to say a word about it. It is unbelievable to me that the concept of social distancing has somehow become a thing. I have a background in public health. I'm a residency trained board certified physician. I'm here to tell you that you can pick I've got books galore in my library on public health, virology, epidemiology from Harvard, where I did my public health training. And I defy you to find a textbook on the shelf of my library and look in the index and find the phrase social distancing. That's really because interesting that, yeah. yeah. This is a made up construct that had huge impact socially, economically, and, and otherwise. But we instead implemented these things. And as it was happening in real time, I'm saying, wait a minute, everybody knows, everybody with a lick of common sense knows, or anybody who trained in medicine knows that unfortunately, much to my dismay, masks simply do not stop the spread of respiratory viruses. We've known this for decades. Otherwise, why wouldn't we all simply don masks from October to February every year doing influenza season and think of the untold deaths we would prevent? but we don't do it because they don't work. And that's why we don't do it. So the idea that all of the sudden, these things became not only mainstream, but they became evidence of whether or not you were a good human being, whether or not you were a good and caring person, or you were a, a selfish sot like myself who refused to wear the mask. Uh, you know, so this, it, be, it took on a life of its own and the mask and the social distancing and these things became, they really took on this, this talisman-like quality that they somehow could, could prevent you from becoming ill. They would you know, ward away the evil spirits. 
And if nothing else, I believe also in medicine and public health, we are obligated to dispel myths, to, to promote people to do the things that are actually useful, but discourage them from doing things that are not only useless, but likely harmful. And that would certainly include things like forcing children to oh, wear yeah. masks for eight or 10 hours a day. These things are not just benign uh, sort of inconveniences, if you will. These things are harmful. We are seeing a tremendous uptick in cases of you know, dental caries, gingival problems, facial rashes, no, you know, to say nothing of the psychosocial impact of wearing masks. The fact that children are suffering from anxiety and insomnia, headaches, uh, you know, social phobias, and all of these sorts of things. So lockdowns themselves, we have what I call, you know, COVID lateral damage. Uh, the, the fact that because of the lockdowns that were implemented across so much, at least of, of our country, and I'm assuming in the UK as well, people did not avail themselves of the healthcare that they normally would. So now, 18 months later, we are seeing the delayed diagnosis of cancer, breast cancer, skin cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, because people didn't go and get those screening exams for which they were scheduled. And, and we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing exactly yeah. the same thing in the UK. Yeah. We've got, you know, and, you know, despite, you know, I, I happen to know some people, you know, actually sort of quite close to it. And we've got lots of empty hospitals and right. that kind of thing. And and actually, you know, what, what because because a lot of stuff sort of started to come after the first few months, we started to see, didn't we, that, hold a minute, we're talking about cases here rather than deaths and and you saw yeah. things get mixed we'll we'll cover deaths here cases here as and when that the, they want to and then you start to see a bit of an agenda where you went okay hold on a minute it's really it's really clear to us now it's older people dying from covid it, we're not being provided you know there were little things that would come out around you know the number of people not not getting to to see specialists for cancer or whatever the number of suicides the mental health issues and, and these things started coming out and it, it, it became pretty obvious there's some kind of an agenda here um that you know wherever it's coming from and i don't know what's your what's your views on I suppose where that agenda originated. What, what's your sort of um, take on this agenda and where it's sort of come from, Kelly? Well, again, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I'm really not, and I certainly am not anti-vaccine, for example. Um, it, but I agree with you. You you are left to come to the conclusion that there has to be some other bigger agenda because I have never in my entire career, not only in medicine, but in public health, seen this type of overreaction. And furthermore, this driving initiative for vaccination for all people. And we can talk at some length about why that is unwise and why it's absolutely not warranted. But the idea that they are suppressing information about effective, uh, easy, safe, inexpensive treatment, for example, and we could talk about those medications. Definitely, that yeah. They, that they are refusing and have from the beginning refused to differentiate between a case. And we've never before defined a case as someone who tested positive for something but had nary a symptom. 
mean, we don't randomly test people for strep throat, for example, if they don't have any symptoms. We don't randomly test people uh, and then call them a case. And in some cases, people, individuals were tested four, five, six or more times over a period and kept coming back positive. Yeah, and actually and Kelly- were, Yeah, they, they, were, they were recorded as a new case. How can one person be yeah, more than one yeah. case? And it, just on the the testing, because I don't know. I mean, you, you might be able to shed some light on 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 what the situation is uh, over in America, because in the UK they've gone massively for testing, big testing everywhere, oh, and we've, yes. you know, and we sort of. I mean, at, at the moment, for example, we're in a situation where that they're, they're really pushing testing, particularly in schools, um, and whenever there's any kind of issues in schools. And, and clearly, as a result, you know, the cases are going up and we know that these, I mean, these tests, the PCR tests, I mean, what's your view on the PCR test? That's well, the P, this is this is the root of much of the problem. Uh, again, I have a, a bucket of things that were highly, highly problematic and, and the PCR test certainly falls in that bucket. The PCR test, to be clear, James, was never intended ever to be used as a tool to diagnose active disease of any sort. Carrie Mullis, who, who invented the test and won a Nobel Prize for it in 1993, was the first to say, wait a minute, this test isn't supposed to be used to determine if someone is actively ill. The reason that the test itself was used to try to grab tiny, tiny amounts of genetic material, DNA or RNA, and then amplify it, increase it exponentially, purely so that you would have enough of that material to study it. Because if, if you have this tiny little fragment, it's too little for us actually to study. So he developed this way, this, this te technique to take a tiny, tiny fragment of genetic material and amp it up so that it could be enough for a scientist to actually look at it under a microscope and run tests. And, and I've seen some of the interviews with it, you know, and it's pretty yeah. obvious he, that's exactly what he, he, he pretty much, he, he, you know, he, he confirms, doesn't he, that it's not designed for what it's it, being it, used, it, you know, for, for... Because it picks up, because what happens very, very often is it the test will pick up some insignificant, inconsequential fragment of, of the virus, COVID-19, from who knows, God knows when, a, a fragment incapable of replicating, incapable of being spread to other people, and incapable of causing disease, yet read it out as a, quote, positive and say, oh, you have, quote unquote, COVID-19. It would be tantamount in the example I've used is finding a stray hair from your dog who died three years ago on the floor of your bedroom or your office, picking up that <laughs> hair and then coming to the conclusion that the dog must still be there because, see, I found this hair. No, it is a remnant of something that, that, that in large you know, numbers of people uh, had nothing to do with having COVID-19 ever and certainly not actively. Yet the test was used and it was used over and over again to foment fear and panic that see, oh my gosh, there's an uptick in cases, cases are on the rise. When the, that number itself is not, no parameter that should have even been followed. The only thing that ever should have mattered was how many people are needing to avail themselves of medical care, how many people are being hospitalized, ending up in the ICU or God forbid dying. And those numbers are the numbers that we should have been following and only those numbers. And yeah, that, I mean, it just, just 
moving on a little bit to the vaccine, because what I wanted to ask you, on, I just thought in, in terms of the vaccine in the UK, what was quite interesting is that when obviously the vaccine was in development and, and politicians here in power were asked about, okay, what, you know, what's the situation with the vaccine? It was very clear from UK politicians that, that what they were saying was, is look, you know, this is going to be used essentially for the vulnerable people. It was essentially going to be, hadn't been specified exactly, but you know, there were specific things said, we're not going to be using these on children. We're not going to be using this on young people. Not necessary. And what? And, I, and this is going to sound potentially a bit conspiratorial, but I remember um, uh, uh, Boris Johnson had a meeting with uh, with Bill Gates at Number Ten, mm -hmm. and uh, almost immediately after that, I felt a massive change, massive sort of massive push in the UK. We're going to be one of the leading vaccinating countries. And it's going to be for everybody and we're going to push it. And that whole um, direction of travel, that whole approach has been used alongside, which we will get into, Kelly, around, you know, mainstream media, et cetera. As of that point, there seemed to be a real massive push in terms of that. Is, is, is that sort of similar to how it's been in America? I know, obviously, you've gone from obviously Trump moving on and then Biden. So you're talking about two different people in the middle of the, with clearly different um, different strategies. But is that how you've sort of seen it in America? Yes, ab ab absolutely. And to be clear, once again, I am very pro-vaccine. I have been described by many as a vaccine zealot in the past. I've, I've spent much yeah. of my career speaking and writing about the importance of getting childhood vaccinations, and that is one of the great uh, sort of successes of public health. But when I say that, what I mean, James, is for vaccines that have been fully tested, fully vetted, uh, and, and that is not what we have here. I describe vaccines as the proverbial three-legged stool, where the legs are safety, efficacy, and necessity. And uh, even if I'm willing to give you uh, that if efficacy uh, is, is reasonable on these vaccines, and now with the Delta variant, we're seeing that perhaps uh, even that is, at, is in question. But even if I'm willing to give on the efficacy leg of my three-legged stool, let's talk about safety. Uh, there's a reason why the average vaccine takes four to six years to come to market in the United States. That's if it ever comes to market at all. There are an awful lot of viruses for which uh, scientists have never crafted a safe and, and effective vaccine. Think about things like HIV, herpes, norovirus, Coxsackie virus. I could go on and on. Things that we've been working on for decades and decades and have never been able to get a safe and effective vaccine. Yet somehow these were launched uh, over a period of months and then rolled out to vast portions of the public on whom they had never, ever been tested. Absolutely. And, and it's almost like the combination, Kelly, isn't it, of the fact that, you know, as you rightly say, they're under the emergency authorization, aren't they? But not only that, but the fact that also, you, that, you know, potentially there's a risk reward um, argument, isn't there, for vulnerable people. Right. We've got this vaccine, hasn't been tested. We don't know, but you're at risk of COVID. What's your decision? And I maybe naively thought, certainly earlier on, you know, I thought I'm not going to have this um, uh, experimental vaccine, but I can understand if somebody was in that 
position, maybe. But what we've got is we've got the combination of the fact that it is being te- it is a, in, in trial, and we're going we're, we're trying to vaccinate all, all all these people who really aren't in the profile of being in any danger. Really, any, I mean, if you take children any statistical danger really at all from coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. And so you hit the nail on the head. Vaccine, an experimental vaccine in particular, always comes down to a well thought through risk benefit calculation. Okay, what is your risk from the virus itself weighed against the potential benefits and or risk of the vaccine? So I agree with you. If you're a 75 year old obese person in a nursing home with uh, type two diabetes, it may well make sense for you to take the risk of this as yet untested vaccine because your risk of succumbing to COVID or having a bad outcome if you were to contract COVID is relatively high. But if you apply that uh, that same calculus to the rest of the population, healthy people under the age of 50 with no comorbidities, that becomes a really lousy risk benefit calculation. And then you take groups of people on whom the, the vaccine was never even preliminarily tested, like pregnant women, lactating women, people with underlying autoimmune diseases, and largely the huge huge number of people who already had and recovered from COVID. Those people were never in the test groups, even before the vaccine was launched as an experimental vaccine. So people who are taking the vaccine right now, and let me be clear, I respect anyone's personal decision to take a vaccine, but they need to understand that you are a subject in the experiment. You are a test subject. These are experimental and you are participating in a study. And I'm, I, God, God love you if you do, if you've made that decision that's right for you. But the idea that people are being coerced, mandated, shamed into participating in this is an absolute violation of the Nuremberg Code. It's very scary. It defies everything we hold dear with regard to informed consent. And frankly, I find it very scary and very poor public health policy. I think, yeah, it's 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 very sinister, isn't it? And I think you know, yeah. And we, we you, 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 I mean, certainly, um, certainly in, in in this country, you know, I've seen you know, there's, there's so many videos of people going to vaccination centres, you know, undercover reporting, where you know, frankly. Um, you know, a lot of the people in the vaccination centre, they've not even heard of the um, MHRA system, you know, equivalent to your VAERS, etc. And you, you look at it and I mean, I, I happen to know as well. I mean, I know um, I know of one person in their 40s. He's had um, heart problems as a reason. You know, he's had the vaccines. But the problem is, Kelly, with an individual, like that, he's so brainwashed, he doesn't think it's anything to do with it. And it may not be to do with the vaccine you know to, to, to be clear but you, you've got to look at it and go well we know that is a known side effect for younger people it he had no problems prior to that but it's interesting that you know this clearly there clearly is under reporting to some extent but you look at those systems and i think and I think I'm right in saying the latest fares data. I mean, it's it's just jumped up enormously, hasn't it? To something like seven to nine thousand deaths, uh, uh, and I don't know whether oh, oh, that's oh, gone. We we are over, well over ninety five hundred associated deaths, and according yeah. to the CDC itself, 
in previous studies and a large study done by Harvard some years ago, the VAERS system is believed to capture somewhere between one and 10%. My goodness, yeah. Actual adverse events. Now, while simply reporting an adverse event does not make it uh, necessarily a result of, quote unquote, the vaccination, it certainly becomes highly suspect. For example, we are seeing, even when you talk about relatively mild adverse uh, effects, things like tinnitus, ringing in the ears, uh, outbreaks of shingles. We're seeing a huge number of people having outbreaks of shingles um, following vaccination for COVID. Now, obviously, COVID vaccination doesn't cause shingles. Shingles is a reactivation of the chickenpox virus, but it is, we are seeing an uptick of like 10 to 12 fold people having outbreaks of shingles following the vaccination. And I also have to go on the record to say that we have never in the history of virology or immunology had a safe and effective mRNA vaccine. It's not that scientists haven't tried. We've been trying it for decades. Every single time an mRNA vaccine has been tried, it has been pulled during the animal testing portion of the trials prior to being injected into humans because of the profoundly negative downstream impacts. And I really worry that what we are seeing now in terms of the acute adverse events, everything from blood clots to myocarditis and pericarditis, uptakes in neurologic symptoms like Bell's palsy, um, intermittent paralysis, tinnitus, these sorts of things. I fear that this is the proverbial tip of the iceberg, that downstream 12, 24, 36 months from now, we are going to see an uptick in things like autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, demyelinating diseases, um, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, the whole host of things that fall into the autoimmune category and I really worry about that. And it's terrifying to me that people who were at no risk or very, very low risk from the virus itself, particularly in light of the growing number of medications and treatments that we have for the virus, that those people possibly have taken a risk in something that could be life altering when the virus itself did not pose significant it's, risk. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just on the side effect, because because one thing, you know, for me, the alarm bells are that whether or not they were known and not told to us or they were unknown or a combination of the two. The fact is, when the vaccine was initially, um, you know, st- sort of started on a wide, be- a wide scale, none of these side effects or very or, or there's certainly a lot of the side effects weren't even weren't even sort of brought up as a possibility, uh, which either means they've been hidden, doesn't it? Or they or they they just don't know. And of course, where they don't know, you sort of think exactly like you're saying there in terms of the longer term side effects. And there's certainly, you know, we're seeing I've seen, you know, quite a few things. You've got Robert Malone, haven't we? Talking about the spike protein congregating in the ovaries and potentially in the bone marrow as well. We've got, you know, we've got we, we've got quite a lot of, um, you know, very qualified people, you know, scientists, people in the medical profession who who have lots of questions around the longer term impact. And it's concerning, isn't it? Oh, well, Moderna just announced on Tuesday this week that they are going to start a study, launch a study um, to look at the safety of their vaccine in pregnant women. I'm thinking, 
Okay, it's but dry. we're only using it. <laughs> yeah. This is this is ready fire aim. Uh, yeah. this, what are you talking about? You're going to start a study now after tens of thousands of pregnant women globally have been injected with this vaccine. Now we're going to look and see uh, whether it's safe. I mean, this seems um, absolutely unethical, immoral, uh, and, and really bad from a public health policy. But again, you're seeing this continued doubling down not just in this country, but clearly in the UK and, and uh, other places around the globe to vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. They would like you to believe that your only hope of surviving, of not succumbing to this virus is if you get vaccinated. So you should hide in your basement, wear a mask, bathe in Purell and stay away from others until you finally roll up your sleeve and take their experimental vaccine. And that simply isn't the case. And if nothing else, again, uh, you know, back to, to my training, uh, you know, I teach a course on leadership in times of crisis. And I can tell you that what we know from studying multiple crises over decades and decades, multiple events, is that people do not make good decisions when they're operating in a place of fear. When you are making decisions with, from fear and emotion rather than from scientific fact and data. Uh, I've spent my career giving people really bad news. Um, it's, a, it's a skill, unfortunately, to deliver bad news, whether that's uh, a death sentence uh, from a, you know, a disease like cancer or to tell them that a loved one has died, whatever it is. So I'm not talking about sugarcoating things. I'm talking about giving people facts upon which they can then make a calculated decision on what's best for them. But that information is being kept from the public and people like myself are being highly, highly censored, silenced, canceled, whatever you want to call it, uh, to keep me from being able to give just a more reasoned, more measured, balanced sort of way of looking at things. Um, again, as I said, I'm not a virus denier. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I simply believe that people have the right to know what their options are and that to help them to make the best informed decisions for themselves and their families. And when you hear them keep saying, vax, 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 your only choice is to get vaccinated, it, you must be led to wonder why. And clearly money is, is a significant driver, I believe. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars being made by a small group of people in not only the pharmaceutical uh, industry, but individuals, people like Bill Gates um, are making a lot of money. And there are people who have a vested interest in covering up much about the origins of this virus. And that includes embarrassingly many people uh, at the CDC and the NIH in the United States, including Anthony Fauci, uh, who clearly were involved in the research that was being done to fundamentally weaponize the virus, which it's pretty clear now to everybody uh, that it didn't emanate from some wet market in Wuhan, but it actually got out of a lab uh, there, a virology lab. Um, I don't have a, um, a basis upon which to have an opinion as whether that happened by sheer incompetence or uh, purposefully, but I can say with absolute certainty what I've known from the beginning, what I said from uh, February of 2020, which is this is not a naturally occurring virus. Uh, this clearly was lab manipulated. 
there's no way that it occurred in nature. Um, and now it is finally, after 18 months of suffering the slings and arrows, for having said, yeah, such, yeah, it's a treasonous thing. Uh, I now am being vindicated. It's incredible, isn't it? I was just yeah. just on that sort of thing, you know, when you talked about that. I mean, I remember very early on, you know, um, uh, uh, re reading. Well, actually, they don't even have bats at this market. And then there was the suspicious. <laughs> there was this suspicious thing as well. I think. I think there was a picture of a bat in a market which was from a completely different market in a right, different right, country right, right. yeah and then on top of that you you had the fact that um um uh, what was i going to say um yeah the, the, on, on top of that they were sort of saying well well look it's the the lab is 20 miles um in proximity to this market and that's what i was going to say and the market i believe i think the chinese authorities you know, completely clean that market out within 24 hours or a really short space of time, right, which right. if you thought that, you know, this horrendous virus had originated there, you'd be cordoning it off. You'd have forensics carefully going oh. around it, wouldn't you? There was none of that. And and you sort of think, well, it, it, it all of the thing, a lot of the things that almost have been said in what would have been considered the conspiracy side of things, have ended up almost, you know, ended up pretty much, um, you know, coming true almost every stage of the way. Well, absolutely, and more damning with regard to the virus itself. And we knew this back, uh, the, as I said, in the end of January, early February, as soon as we had the genomic sequencing, it was very clear to scientists, to virologists, that this isn't naturally occurring. And we now know from Anthony Fauci's emails that he knew it too, uh, that information had been relayed to him, that it's very clear. The In layman's terms, the way I would describe it is, when you look at the virus microscopically, when you look at the genetic sequencing, it's very clear that it was manipulated. And I'd make the analogy, it's as if uh, when somebody has a document and they cut and paste from another document and they take a piece out and plunk it in, but they forget to make sure that the fonts are the same, you know, that, that part of it is in Calibri and then there's a sentence that's in New Times Roman. Okay, what well, you could tell that it was cut and spliced, that's how this virus looks. It's clear that there was a piece, pieces that were cut and spliced from other viruses and plunked in there, like your Word document that has two different fonts yeah, in it. Yeah. Uh, so the person's busted because you go, yeah, you cut and pasted that from, uh, from another document. Same thing. So you can, under the microscope, you say, wow, that's a chunk from the HIV. That's a chunk from HIV. That, that didn't, you know, that's not from a bat virus. And you can see that these are not naturally occurring sequences. So why, you know, did they cover that up? Well, they covered it up because they wanted to cover up the fact that they were doing gain of function research, which had been out, um, sort of put in a moratorium, if you will, wasn't mm -hmm. actually made illegal, but there was a moratorium called on gain of function research under the Obama administration in 2015. So uh, unbeknownst to two people, Anthony Fauci simply funneled US taxpayer dollars through the EcoHealth Alliance, uh, this shill uh, nonprofit, to bring that research over to the lab in Wuhan and to do it over there and continue research that had been going on at places like the University of North Carolina and the University of Texas at Galveston and other research labs in the US. So it couldn't be done here because scientists here had said, 
largely, wow, this is really dangerous stuff. We shouldn't be weaponizing viruses that could be used against us. And it really would be a really bad idea to do it with one of our greatest geopolitical foes. Um, but lo and behold, that's in fact what happened. Um, so they tried to cover this up. And, you know, it's really, in the words of George Orwell, uh, all tyrannies um, controlled by fraud and, and force. And once the fraud is exposed, they are left with nothing but force. Uh, and, and that I fear is, is where we are right now, that they are trying to cram these vaccines down everybody's throats. It feels um, like that. And it feels, you know, one of the issues at the moment as well, I think, and, and you know, I think having sort of, you know, seen a, a quite a few things over in the, you know, in the American media, et cetera, you know, at least, we're seeing some questioning, aren't we? I think on Fox a little bit, a little bit of questioning around around some of this stuff. Um, it, I mean, in the UK, we've got this situation, Kelly, where you know we all of the mainstream media are absolutely lockstep around we're never going to question the, the vaccine or vaccine effectiveness. There's been some terrible manipulation, especially I would suggest by the BBC. It's been horrendous. Um, around all of this this stuff and one of the problems that we have and i think you'll you'll probably um uh, uh, agree with this y yourself is we've got a lot of people just accept what they're being told by the mainstream so the moment you question it and what they're doing as well is is exactly like you intimated earlier if you question all of that stuff even though we've got the data etc it's your conspiracy theorist right. and with and if you look at, you know, looking at the Fauci example, you know, I've seen some of those leaked emails. Now, in any normal circumstance where everybody had all the information, you know, it's arguable they'd be baying for his blood from the from the point of view that we've right. literally been pushed to push down this whole vaccine route. We've been pushed down this, especially when you look at which I'm sure we'll get onto you know, some, some of what his people had said about some of the alternative treatments, which clearly he then buried, and, right. you know, and you look at that kind of stuff and you go, um, you, you know, in any normal circumstance, there'd be major, major um, uh, problems for him. But the problem that we've got is it's this misinformation to normal people. And I know here what we, the problem we have, Kelly, with a lot of this stuff is that if I sit down with somebody who's going to get the vaccine, have the vaccine, et cetera, and try and have an open conversation with them. They don't want to know. They think you're just one of these crazy people it, because th they don't need to know all of the information around it, et cetera. And I think that's where the pro that's where it's, it, it's not only very irresponsible in the mainstream media, it really ha is having that impact on a lot of people. And I suppose for me, I'm very, um, I'm really surprised and it's really disappointing that so many people have just accepted all this stuff at face value. I, I agree, it, but it's, it, it could not have happened without the complicity of the media along with this because, and that is why really I agreed to enter this lawsuit as a, as a co-plaintiff with, with Trump um, against the suppression of information, the censorship, because it is so dangerous. When, when the, there's censorship, when, when all the information cannot get out there, particularly at a time of crisis, when people are hungry for information, they're desperate to educate themselves, to learn about all of their options and to make the best decisions, 
if people are led to believe this is all that's out there because half of the story has been suppressed, they cannot make a good decision. And it's really, really concerning. You know, I can't, I, I tried to say, what if we, if we put it in the alternative, if instead conservatives or a different group of us were in control of social media, for example, and you went onto Google and you Googled um, unwanted pregnancy, and the only information that came up was information about adoption agencies. Regardless of how I, Kelly Victory, feel about terminating a pregnancy or abortion, it would be wrong to not allow people to get all of the information, all of their options to deal with that issue. And that's what they're doing with COVID. People who couldn't pronounce the name hydroxychloroquine in the mainstream media all of a sudden have an opinion about it. What the heck? They have an opinion and a strong opinion. They're saying, oh my gosh, this is, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff. And the people who are promoting well, it- Well, Kelly, are... I just, just as an example of that, I mean, the, 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 the ignorance of people over here, because, you know, certainly, you know, we're, take, we're talking about Donald Trump and stuff like that. Most people have this view that is, is basically given by, you know, what the BBC covers, et cetera, over here or whatever. And, you know, I mentioned about, you know, to, to somebody that I know hydroxychloroquine and, and he immediately sort of went back to that whole Trump thing around bleach, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And it shows the absolute, and I think it, it demonstrates the point that the problem is, rightly or wrongly, people get their truth in inverted commas from, you know, five, six sources and those five, six sources have a monopoly. And I think if you're, unless you're outside of those sources, you know, I think a lot of people aren't even, they're not even aware of there being any questions whatsoever about the vaccine. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, it's so crucial that we have to get away from the fact that at the moment, people are controlling what the truth is, which you mentioned George Orwell before, it's really Orwellian, isn't it? You know, and, and and I mean, we've got the new, I think the New Zealand uh, premier just recently said, you know, you, you don't need to get your truth from anywhere other than from us. And this kind of language around the world from various people in terms of what, you know, it, 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 in positions of power, we've got to challenge that. And it's really good you are challenging that. But it, and it goes even further because it's not just that they don't want to do it themselves. They don't want you to do it. Because I said early on, I said, trust me, yeah. you know, if, if you just have it tattooed on your forehead, if you want no hydroxychloroquine, just tattoo it on your forehead. If you come into my hospital sick and you don't want, I promise I no one's going to force it on you. The question is, why don't you want others to be able to try it? Okay. Yeah. Why yeah. is it that it's not, okay. What is it about this effort that's saying, not only do you not want it, you don't want to try ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or any of these other drugs that have been around for 65 years and are dirt cheap and are taken by hundreds of millions of people around the globe on an annual basis for everything from malaria to rheumatoid arthritis um, with nary a, a bad effect. But what is it that's, that is making it so that you don't want it, but no one else can have it either? I mean, and this is, let's remember, so many of the people, at least in the United States, who are pushing, pushing, pushing these experimental vaccines they're the same people who wouldn't dare to eat a genetically modified tomato and wouldn't you know, <laughs> dare give their children non-organic carrots, 
but 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 I should roll up my sleeve with zero questions and take an experimental vaccine. I mean, it is so it it just defies logic. Um, and I really have you know keep coming back to the fact that people are acting out of fear, um, which is always a bad idea. And as you said, they are receiving only a certain tiny distilled segment of the actual available information. They're choosing to believe it, but it has become the consummate virtue signaling that if you say anything else, if you question any of this, you are a bad person, you are selfish, you are somehow you know, a conspiracy theorist or in the United States, you, you know, you're all of a sudden a Trump supporter. If you, if you believe the data yeah. on hydroxychloroquine, you're a Trump supporter. I'm saying, no, actually, I read the study from 2005 after SARS, the, the SARS-CoV-1, the first the original uh, COVID outbreak in 2003, and I read the studies that were written in 2005 by Anthony Fauci and the NIH that concluded that both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were felt to be extremely effective against coronaviruses. So fast forward to 2020, why wouldn't I say, hey, there's- Yeah, and, and do, you, do, you know what it, do you know what it reminds me of? I think when you're talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, with what particular individuals say, it's, it's, it's people's ability to distinguish between heroes and villains, isn't it? You've got, you know, in, in other words, in, in other words, you don't have to agree with everything. You, you, occasionally, but, you know, very occasionally, but, but, you know, Biden might do this, this thing, which is good, might do this thing, which is bad. Trump might do this thing, which is good, this thing, which is bad. And I think it's this idea that we have to disagree with everything that person says or agree with everything that person says and I think you know we see it with we see I think we see it with you know where Fauci says don't question don't question me you're questioning science that kind of attitude and I think you've got we've got this situation where people are people are believing things or not believing things depending who says them rather than because of what the substance is behind it isn't it Exactly. You've got to be able to distinguish between the message and the messenger. Uh, you, you can think whatever you want about Donald Trump. Regardless, he is bringing up a critically important point to our republic, which is our First Amendment right to free speech. And obviously, everyone in the United States recognizes and acknowledges that the federal government cannot silence me. The federal government cannot shut me up because of my First Amendment right. But likewise, they can't farm that out to a third party. They can't farm it out to Facebook and YouTube and say, you censor her, you shut her up. Because, and that is in fact, and it became very clear just yesterday, um, the White House Correspondent Secretary, Jen Psaki came out and said, the federal government, the, the Biden administration is working with Facebook to, quote, identify problematic people and identify problematic statements so that Facebook has an easier time shutting them down and censoring them. That's very scary. That is it's, it's very it's very sinister. And what you're doing, I think, Kelly, it's I mean, you know, I think there's, a, there's certainly on this side of the pond, there's there's lots of support in terms of with the, um, you know, with the whole sort of truth community, if you like, everybody's absolutely behind it. And I think it's interesting when you, 
you know, when you start looking, because because actually, I mean, it, it, Donald Donald Trump's come come out recently, hasn't he, to say, you know, we, there's no reason for vaccinating children. He's the he's pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the very very few people that uh, right. at, at that sort of you know that sort of in in that sort of uh, level of, of politics that's actually come out and said these things, etc. And I think. Um, you know, we, we, in terms of the, in terms of this uh, this case you're involved in, I think it's crucial for us all because I think we need to have a situation where we're getting some open debate and truth out there, and that's how it needs to start to actually show to people what's going on. Because unfortunately, it, there are too many people who just accept what they're told. So I think that makes the responsibility to do something even more important i think exactly and so I, I would say that the only thing you know before the internet existed and we all had to go back to the original research ourselves and read the studies and frankly i fault many of my colleagues in in medicine it's been one of the greatest uh disappointments of this entire pandemic has been the laziness in the intellectual incuriosity of my colleagues who have been unwilling to do what we used to do in the old days, which is read the damn study yourself and come to your own conclusion. Don't go for the cliff notes on Google or some other uh, social media platform. Um, but the only thing that is worse than no information is censored or distilled or somehow slanted information that leads you to believe that you're seeing everything that's available uh, and that leads you to the wrong conclusion. And unfortunately, that's what censorship has done. It's propaganda, nothing more, nothing less. And people need to wake up and understand that you are. this is being pre-digested for you to fit a particular narrative. It's very dangerous. And tell me, you know, Kelly. Tell me in terms of the um, in terms of the the, the the legal action. Where where exactly sort of are you, or what's the? I mean, obviously you can't tell me too much, but you you know, in terms of where are you, where you're looking to get to, and you know, just a bit of an update in terms of where. Yeah, we are well, it's, we are hoping. I, I am I am a, a key co plaintiff with President Trump. He just made the announcement. Um, a, a week ago uh, that the case is being filed against Facebook, YouTube, Google, um, and Twitter, uh, specifically for censorship and for violation of our First Amendment rights. Um, and frankly, they keep helping us. They're giving it to us on a silver platter as recently as yesterday with what they said that they, they've now acknowledged they are working with Facebook to try to um, identify people who they want silenced. Um, and that includes everything from the lab leak theory to uh, the effectiveness of drugs like hydroxychloroquine uh, and any questioning of the vaccines and their safety and efficacy, necessity, things of that sort. Um, it, you know, the wheels of justice turn, but they turn very, very slowly. So uh, there won't be day to day or week to week uh, updates on it. Um, we are hopeful that many, many people will jump on. It's a class action suit. Uh, and to be, to be very clear, it, this is not about money. None of us uh, who are plaintiffs stand to make any significant money. The, the attorneys, if the case were to be won, it would be to the benefit financially of the attorneys and no one else. Um, I am, however, nothing if not mission driven. And this is about the mission of trying to make a point. They have got to change this policy. Uh, they are hiding under the guise of being, quote, private companies and therefore that they can censor or remove anything they so choose because they are private. But you are no longer, and really the, the crux of the lawsuit 
is that you cannot claim to be a private company if you have colluded with or are coordinating with the federal government. Uh, and whether yeah. that's get favorable tax um, treatment or whatever it is, whatever you are getting in terms of cash and prizes in order to- uh, And you're not, and also as well, you're not merely facilitating a conversation, you're influencing that conversation and what's oh. allowed and what's not allowed on it. So, you, you, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff, so you make it, but you know, they're clearly acting as, uh, you know, th th they're essentially acting as a publisher, aren't they, of it, material, it, it, you know? It, it, Exactly. And it's at a time when I can tell you in med you know, medicine, science, healthcare, uh, areas I know deeply, uh, we have always come to the best decisions, the best conclusions, the best course of action through robust and rigorous debate respectful, but robust and vigorous debate. That is the basis of science. It's standing in the hallway saying, well, wait a minute, did you think about this? Or why didn't you consider that? Or what about this treatment? Or, you know, did you look at this study? That's how we come to the conclusion. God help, thank God, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube weren't around during Galileo's time, or we might still think the earth was flat. Absolutely. And you see, you see, I mean, it's, it's interesting, Kelly, as I've seen on, on, on Facebook, you know, the reasons for taking certain posts down. And whilst they try and sort of manipulate the language a little bit, it seems clear it's not only a case of fact checking, inverted commas. It's basically saying, you know, it's all it's almost saying, well, this is encouraging vaccine hesitancy, whether or not it's true. And we've, we've got the, the example, haven't we, of all of the, um, I think, I mean, I think there was, there was, there was m many thousands of people vaccine injury, um, uh, affected by vaccine injuries. They shut that group down. And I know myself personally, I've had an experience on LinkedIn of literally parroting the government's, the UK government's own MHRA deaths on there and that mm -hmm. post being deleted. So, you know, yes. it's really clear that it's not just about, it's not just about a, a, uh, a you know, a fact that could be interpreted. There's things that, that are clearly true, or even that, that, that these, that Facebook, et cetera, acknowledges may well be true, that they're still taking off, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I, I did a, uh, a show, I don't know if you know over in the UK who Dr. Drew is, um, Dr. Drew is a, 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 a well-known sort of uh, celebrity physician uh, who has a huge following in the United I've States. I've seen the odd clip, yeah. And, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, he and I did a show, uh, a, like a 90-minute um, show on Sunday, this past Sunday, about censorship and about specifically the lawsuit that I'm involved in with, uh, with President Trump. Um, and we talked about the things, I talked about the things that I was being censored for, and we posted it on you, that video on YouTube, and it was censored. It was taken down. So our, our I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Um, it, and but, surely that's got to help the case now. I mean, surely, you know, they literally, they, yeah. And, 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 and I think it's almost like they're sort of, you know, uh, you can't work out whether it's sort of arrogance or whether it's just they think that eventually, you know, it will just use up time until, you know, but ultimately you've got to be thinking they've got to be, they've got to lose. 
Well, it'll be very, very interesting. We certainly hope it goes to the Supreme Court because we need to make a fundamental and lasting change in the way things happen um, with regard to censorship uh, and canceling people. But it's also- And then it allows a precedent, doesn't it? Sorry, Kelly, it allows a precedent because it's not just about those, but clearly they are the biggest perpetrators, but it allows a precedent for- and it, it also begs, there's a, a defamation component to it. Uh, I certainly have been a victim of it because once you are censored by any of these platforms, you know, if anybody goes to find your video, they get a pop-up that says, you know, this video was removed because the poster, you know, Dr. Kelly Victory violated our community standards. And then sometimes they go on to say what you violated. And generally it's, you know, she violated our community standards by making statements that contradict the stance of the World Health Organization. A scary statement in and of itself. But um, but that statement, then people will take a screenshot of that and say, oh, she was censored by Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. That becomes de facto evidence that you are a a quack, a bad person, a conspiracy theorist, a whatever. People will say, oh, well, you know, she was censored by YouTube or she was, her video was taken off by Facebook. And people use that as proof, therefore, that you are an incredible person, that you are not a reliable it's, source. It's the whole, there's no, no smoke without fire, isn't it, kind right. of scenario. And what you get, I've seen it with Google as well. If you, if you look up on Google, somebody who is questioning the narrative, you'll probably find that, that you, know, you know, in that first page of results, it's people discrediting that person. Exactly. And so, so there's a whole industry now of discrediting people, of canceling people. Um, you know, there's, and people will cite those sources and you're saying, you don't even know who those sources are. Those sources are largely paid for already by Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. They're their own internal sources. And you don't get to know generally who they are. You're just told that the fact checkers, I'm saying, okay, I would like to know who they are. I mean, let, let's throw down, let's put our credentials on the table. I'm happy to tell you mine. I can show you what, you know, I, I went to some of the, the best institutions in the United States. You know, I went to Duke University, Harvard University, University of Illinois, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'll tell you exactly where my degrees are from. You know, let throw down, who are you? fact checker uh, and what exactly is the fact you know who you know who's whose authority uh, you know do you have and who's funding you you know where, where's exactly. the financial who's interest you? yeah you know yeah. and i tell people all the time you know i i have i have nothing to hide in the duration of this pandemic from january of last year i have done daily television on multiple multiple stations i spend hours and hours and hours a week on on radio hours a week doing podcasts like this one hours a week on television um, writing articles i answer probably three to four hundred emails a week from people asking for help all around the world um, from everything to where they can avail themselves of certain medications to uh, information about their kids or vaccinations and i have made not one penny and I was going to say, Kelly, it, it, you look at it, you, you, you look at it as well and you go, if you look at people's motivations and you, you, yes. the reality is, is that if you're coming out, uh, even questioning some of this stuff, you know, like, you know, wh why would you do it? You, you know, because nobody's going to, no, you know, nobody's going to sort of, uh, you know, get you on primetime TV. They're going to, you know, delete, discredit you. There's, there's right. no financial benefit 
There's no benefit for it. In fact, just the contrary. So for me, for me as an outsider in this, Kelly, you look at it, you look at the, you know, the number of people who are coming out and saying this is wrong, what's going on is wrong, who are clearly really, really very well qualified, like yourself. And and you look at it and you go, well, well, why would they be doing it? And it's not, we're not talking about one or two people. We're talking about hundreds of people, thousands of people across the world who are doing this. And yeah, actually, you know, you mentioned the World Health Organization before, but you know, again, the kind of thing, you know, talking about in terms of what what people are actually told, etc. You know, you've got to look at it and go, who's funding the World Health Organization? Right. And then you know, you follow that money, etc. You know, Bill Gates, the UK, who've been, you know, one of the leading proponents on the vaccine, etc. And you look at it and you go, and and even when, you know, I mean, the, the WHO had not recommended for children in terms of the vaccine up until very, very recently, didn't they? Then that just disappeared off the um the, the WHO advice once yeah. all the government stopped. But no explanation as to why it's changed from this to this so it's really clear when you start all what we need is we need people to be able to see all of this stuff because i'm pretty convinced that if people were given all of the facts on this kind of thing that we wouldn't be getting a lot of people saying yes to the vaccine i think we get a lot more people going i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna wear masks have children wearing masks and all this kind of stuff and that's where we need to be, isn't it? And it's worth mentioning as well, Kelly, just in terms of the, you know, we, we, we've briefly mentioned before the um, the alternative treatments. It's worth you just sort of giving a bit of a bit of an overview in terms of imbibectin, hydroxychloroquine and, and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, well, we've known, for example, from the very beginning that there was a strong relationship between people being hospitalized with COVID and low vitamin D levels. It became very, very clear. Vitamin D deficiency is quite, quite prevalent in the United States and likewise in the UK. I actually practiced for a while in the UK. Um, it's about 80% uh, of blacks in, in the United States are vitamin D deficient, 50 plus percent of Latinos, more than 30% of Caucasians. And that's similar to what you find in the UK. And we knew from the very beginning that hospitalizations and bad outcomes from COVID were associated with low vitamin D. So talk about a super, super simple thing that public health officials should have been promoting, which is repleting vitamin D. We knew on top of it, we've known for decades that zinc is a very, very powerful antiviral. It actually stops the replication of the virus in its tracks. Once it gets into the cells, zinc doesn't allow viruses, not just COVID-19, but cold viruses, influenza viruses, all, you know, many, many viruses are stopped in their, in their tracks by, by zinc. Very, very simple to supplement. Zinc, unfortunately, has a hard time getting into the cell. So it needs what we call a zinc ionophore. That's a fancy name for a medication that helps to open the door, if you will, to the cell to let the zinc get in from the bloodstream. So one of the greatest zinc ionophores is hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Um, hydroxychloroquine has been FDA approved in the United States for 65 years, six and a half decades, okay? It's that safe. It's dirt cheap. It has essentially zero side effects. It's very well tolerated. And it's been on the list of essential medications worldwide 
for decades because it's that important. It's taken by people all over the world uh, to treat and prevent malaria. It's been used to treat autoimmune diseases and is frequently for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And as I said, it's used and taken by hundreds of millions of people around the globe annually with no ill effect. We started seeing very early on that places in the, in the world that take hydroxychloroquine largely for malaria, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, had very, very low rates of hospitalization for COVID. Uh, and it is largely attributed to the fact that so many people were taking hydroxychloroquine. And um, Kelly, just just on that as well, it's you know what what I found suspicious with hydroxychloroquine as well is is that very early on there were all these YouTube videos by qualified doctors saying this is what we think we you know we need to do hydroxychloroquine and zinc etc. Um, and I saw it, and then suddenly you know going back the suddenly it was very sinister how there was there was qualified people it wasn't you know it wasn't just anyone off the street saying try this um and then suddenly disappeared gone and then there was right. no mention of it again for... and so largely people attribute it i think um in part they're correct but it's not the whole story people attribute it to the fact that donald trump spoke about taking hydroxychloroquine himself mm -hmm. as part of his recovery from covid and that is part of it I think the more important driving force, because it's not just hydroxychloroquine, it's been applied subsequently to ivermectin and, and all the other medications, is that the emergency use authorizations, the way in which you know, all of the vaccines currently being employed are being used under an EUA, emergency use authorization, they are not FDA approved. Um, and the stipulations to get an emergency use authorization are two. Number one, the researchers have to say that is their belief based on preliminary testing that the vaccines will be effective. And number two, you can only get an EUA if, quote, there are no alternative therapies. So it was very, very important for the vaccine manufacturers to squelch and suppress any any talk about there being an effective treatment in hydroxychloroquine or subsequently ivermectin, because if that was true, then they risked losing the emergency use authorization under which they were promoting and, and employing their vaccines. So I think that that is, is really suspect. Um, and then they came out instead with other drugs that were brand new, remdesivir, for example, um, which is, uh, has some, some efficacy in terms of it has never, ever, ever been shown to uh, have an impact on mortality from COVID. Interestingly, it has only been shown to uh, slightly decrease the uh, number of hospitalization days. Uh, it requires the patient to be in the hospital because it's an IV drug that has to be given in a monitored setting. And it comes in at the, uh, at the bangerang price of $3,100 per dose. Um, so you talk about you know, something like hydroxychloroquine, which is about uh, 14 cents a pill, uh, and you, you know, so you're talking, you could treat someone totally for less than $10 uh, for, for COVID with, with hydroxychloroquine, or you can admit them to the hospital for five days and give them $20,000 worth of remdesivir in hopes that you might decrease their hospitalization by a day. Uh, I mean, it, it, you really can't make this stuff up. There, there's, uh, there's no money to be made, is there, from correct. hydroxychloroquine for, for yeah. pharmaceutical companies, yeah. Yeah. Correct. And, and, and likewise, ivermectin is a drug that has been used 
Um, again, for decades, it's primarily used to treat parasites, uh, worms, again, in huge parts of the world. Uh, they take uh, ivermectin regularly because worms are endemic, intestinal parasites are endemic. We also use it in the veterinary world for the same thing. Again, very well tolerated, dirt cheap, uh, few if any side effects whatsoever. And again, we were seeing that places that were, were using the ivermectin prophylactically or to treat COVID were having really good results. And that included places like India. Um, but again, the information on ivermectin, on which there are multiple, multiple studies now showing its effectiveness, but you're hard pressed to actually find those studies outside of the pure scientific literature. In other words, you can't go to Google and actually get those studies to pop up. Um, they have been heavily suppressed. And I've seen cases as well, Kelly, I believe, you know, in America where actually, um, you know, you've got somebody hospitalized. They've actually had to go to a judge to allow them to be able to give them, um, I think ivermectin, it might be hydroxychloroquine, yes. because well, simply the doctors won't get. And I, and I don't know whether that is, you know, I think that sort of demonstrates, doesn't it, how very brainwashed or or part of the whole thing these doctors are to not allow them to do because especially when you look at a situation where with these drugs that and with somebody who's already hospitalized already in a really really bad way these drugs they, they have as you mentioned before very little side effects and actually actually pr proven track record you know even if you question the efficacy they've got a proven track record in terms of the safety so if you're in a situation where well it really can't harm that person even if you don't believe it's going to be effective if right. that makes sense why not try it in other words it, and this is know? the conversation i have on a daily basis because obviously as i said i get calls and emails and people reach out from all over the country saying help us you know my my mother my daughter my whoever is in the hospital and they won't give her these things so i if i can get the treating physicians on the phone I try to have a reasoned conversation with them. And when they're telling me, you know, there's no, we, we don't see any data that, that, you know, promotes or really proves that ivermectin is helpful. And I say to them, you realize this patient's going to die, right? You realize that yes. this person is going to die if you continue doing what you're doing, which is essentially nothing. So tell me, please explain to me what your rationale would be for not trying 60 cents worth of a drug that's been FDA approved for six and a half decades to see, you know, yeah. and frequently I can, you know, guilt them or otherwise cajole them into trying it. And generally with very good, uh, with very good results, unfortunately, there is no medication that I can think of, no case in medicine that I can think of where the patient benefits from waiting until they're really, really sick before you implement the treatment. Um, you know, that, that's never a good way to go. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. You know, so many, never before in medicine have we taken the approach that when somebody comes in with something, we send them home after the diagnosis and say, stay home and come back if you get really, really sick. You know, come back when you have chest pain and you can't breathe. That is something we would never do. But for some reason, that has been the approach with COVID. People get diagnosed, sent home with no treatment whatsoever, and then told to come back if they become profoundly ill. If we instead took those people and said, you know, here's 30 cents worth of ivermectin, take this, add some vitamin D and zinc. And if for some reason in five days you're not better, let us know. But 
nearly 100% of those people would have gotten well. We would have kept people from ever getting to the point where they needed to be hospitalized, let alone in the ICU. So it's been an incredible mismanagement. I think it is correct to call it abject malpractice because that's what it is. We are refusing, doctors are refusing to treat patients um, with early treatment, waiting instead until they become ill uh, because then it becomes, you know, it, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You then implement the medications way too late. The person's about to be put on a ventilator. It's a little late to be giving them any medication. The diagnosis is not no. good once, they, once they're on a ventilator, it's... Right. And, and then they use that as proof. They say, well, we gave him, you know, ivermectin right before we put him on the ventilator and he didn't turn around. See, it doesn't work. You're like saying, no, no, that that's, that is intellectually dishonest at best. Um, we know, as I said, from reams of data around the globe that places that used and implemented these simple treatments early on, places that have promoted vitamin D, vitamin D, Quercetin, which is an over-the-counter zinc ionophore, um, if you don't want to take or don't have access to hydroxychloroquine, there's a very simple nutritional supplement known as quercetin. Um, we can buy it here at our just you know the the nutrition stores, the vitamin store. That actually serves that function of helping zinc get from the bloodstream into the cells where it can do its work against the virus, but we missed a golden opportunity to educate people about simple things they could be doing to enhance the functioning of their own immune systems and instead made people believe that your only hope was to cower in the basement wearing a mask and staying away from others until somebody came up with a vaccine. And that is really uh, dishonest. It's done a huge disservice to the public. Absolutely. And it seems pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, because when you take all of these things into account, you know, clearly there's a load of lives that could have been saved oh, on top of the fact that would we even be doing this vaccine um, program, you know, but it, it, what, what, where do you see, you know, the sort of um, the future in terms of, because, you know, we mentioned before, they're doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, but it, it's, it, I find it sort of looking from the outside and seeing what other people are like and that kind of thing. It's really hard to call at the moment, are, you know, are they acting out of desperation or are they acting out of arrogance, a bit of both? Do you see any sort of, you know, is there a critical mass? You know, obviously you work in the medical profession, et cetera. You know lots of people in the medical profession. Is there a critical mass? You know, what's your sort of view in terms of how things are going and how things are going to go? Because it can be quite difficult, Kelly, sometimes, you know, when you sit on the outside and you sort of say that the more the more truth that you see or that, you know, the more that you actually see the real facts, the more they're doubling down. And you sort of think, you know, where are we going to end up here? Am I going to be am I going to be at my door and I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have people coming around forcing me, you know, forcing back, which is something that six months ago, even I'd have thought that's never going to happen. But right. the more you see the direction, you see, and I'm not sure if they're doing it, Kelly, a little bit out of, you know, it's almost, well, we're never actually going to do it, but this fear will work against you, et cetera. Or might they actually do it, et cetera? You know, what, what's, your, what's your view 
And I know it's only a view. You can't predict what's going to happen. No, no. But I'll tell you, I'm the same way. If you had told me a year ago, first of all, that we would have ever shut down schools, I would have said that's preposterous. Uh, fast forward. And now I would have said six months ago, no one would ever mandate a vaccine, let alone a vaccine that isn't even FDA approved. That's experimental. But it really does look somewhat worrisome. In the United States, I believe this is what will happen. In the US, I don't think the government will mandate the vaccines. I think they're relying on private industry. They're hoping that it'll be the airline industry that says you can't get on our plane. It'll be you know, the sporting venue or the school or whatever. They're relying, I believe, on private industry to drive that and they certainly aren't gonna get in the way of it. Um, so they do, I agree with you 100%, they double down even in the face of evidence that there's this you know, mounting number of adverse events, for example, mounting number of deaths, mounting number of, of concerns about these things. Uh, and despite that, they continue to push this agenda. They are talking about, including the Biden administration is talking about this quote, door to door campaign and then they amended it and said, well, we're not, we're not going to come door to door to, to force you to be vaccinated. We're just going to come door to door to educate you. Uh, as I said, if they come to my door. Although, I'm do you know, I, I sort of see it as a little bit the, the way, see, we're almost sort of down. I know, you know, a lot of people around me who are very much, there's no way I'm having that vaccine. The more you actually know about it, the more you realise that, you know, um, a hamburger, uh, you know, 300 euros or whatever it might be that there's been given various places around the world that's not going to get you to take a vaccine you've already got to the point now you're not going to take you've then done your own research once you're at that point you're not going to sacrifice your life for uh, you know <laughs> a little bit a little bit of cash are you you know and it's it, and it feels like the misjudging that because I think, to be honest, Kelly, I think, you know, I, I know obviously there's a lot more travel around the United States it, it, uh, by plane, et cetera. But, it, but I would imagine that, you know, if you've done the research, you know the situation, you're not going to um, you're not going to get a vaccine now to get on a plane. I think all those people have already done it or already getting it done, if, if you know what I mean. Oh, without question, the, the, the vaccine program has flatlined. OK, yeah. the people who were early adopters who either made the decision that they were in a high risk category and therefore would benefit from it or people who otherwise are in that group who are, who are uh, believers that the federal government has your best interest in mind and they certainly wouldn't lead you astray and therefore you dutifully rolled your sleeve up. Those people have gotten their vaccines. We have more than enough vaccines. There's no issue with with supply. Uh, which there was early on. There are well more vaccines than there is demand at this point. And in fact, I believe that they are shooting themselves in the foot as they double down on these efforts, because the more you try to push something at this point, people start saying, wow, if it's so great, why do you have to, you know, mm -hmm. encourage me or coerce me, you know, with a free baseball hat or tickets to this soccer game or whatever it is you're giving away to try to compel me to take it? There also is a, a phenomenon with people who did take it. There are quite a few people having buyer's remorse, if you will, either because they had an adverse event or they're starting to feel like an idiot for having so readily taken something without much thought about it and without much research. Uh, 
And some subs of those people fall into two groups. There are people who will readily acknowledge, wow, I think I made a bad decision or I'm really hoping I don't have a bad effect from having taken this dang thing. I probably should have thought it through. And there's a group of people who are like those folks who jump into the swimming pool with their clothes on at the wedding reception. They're in the pool and they feel like a jerk. So they say, come on in, everybody's doing it. Come on, come on. Because they're desperate for other people to be in their same, uh, in their same boat. And there are a group of those folks too, who are out there trying to compel people either um, you know, by, by humor or by guilt to go ahead and take the vaccine itself, despite the fact that they can't exactly justify why they did it. They just say, no. Yeah, we have that sinister thing, don't we? You know, I've been vaccinated, look at me type right. situation, right. don't right. we? It's yeah. right thing to do. yeah. If you're a good person, if, if you're a caring person, um, then, then you would do it. And I say to people, and I would I would love to ask, you know, people like Anthony Fauci himself or, or any of these folks in the mainstream media, explain to me, what it is you're concerned about. If you are fully vaccinated, what do you have to fear from me that, or fear from anyone who is not vaccinated? You're vaccinated, right? Because we're seeing that almost as a, a little bit, there's not actually any substantiation behind it, but it's almost like a bit of a rumor Chinese whisper type thing. Because I've seen it, you know, I've actually had a couple of experiences where because I'm not vaccinated that actually okay well you can't come around to have a look at that oh, yeah you can't, that is that is happening but oh, just, despite the fact that this this literally i mean as, as far as i can see there's no evidence whatsoever that that would be the situation no evidence whatsoever but yeah it's it's well, they don't ask you, for example, no, no one's asking you before you, you attend the Christmas you know, holiday party, no one has ever asked you if you were vaccinated for polio, right? Because they yeah, know yeah, that yeah. because they were. So they are they don't give a they don't give a you know a care about whether you were vaccinated for polio because they were. If you choose that's to that's how vaccine, I understood vaccines that, that, works. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's how it's always been until you know, lo and behold, 2020, when the entire world got tipped on its head. You know, no one has ever questioned me whether or not I am vaccinated for for whatever, chicken pox, anything, because they know what their own vaccination status is and they have no care about me. So why is it that all of a sudden, because it can only be one of two things, either you don't actually have much faith in this vaccine that you took uh, and you think that it isn't actually going to protect you, you know, or, or you think that somehow you made a bad decision and you want me to be in your same lot so that whatever happens to all of us who took the vaccine, you know, you won't be in it alone. But, but whatever it is, it defies, it defies logic. And so it likewise, the idea in the United States where we now have uh, people, you know, California, large parts of California now have gone back to mandating masks indoors, you know, especially for unvaccinated people. Well, who is the, un the unvaccinated person who is forced to wear a mask? Who is that person protecting? I mean, clearly they're not protecting the, va the vaccinated people are vaccinated. So why, why yeah. if, if I'm on vaccine, if I'm wearing a mask, who am I protecting? I already said, I don't want a vaccine. I don't have any concern about this. I, Frank, I already had COVID. I had COVID in March of 2020. I'm COVID recovered. I have every reason to believe, and the science is clearly on my side, that COVID recovered people are at zero risk from the, from the virus, including all of the variants every single one of the variants, 
But furthermore, we stand to a higher risk of an adverse event if we were to actually get vaccinated. So COVID recovered people, and as I said, we know this, people who had, for example, uh, SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, uh, people who had it in 2003 and recovered still today, 18 years later, have T-cell immunity to that. 18 years later. So we have every reason to believe that people who had COVID-19 and recovered from it will have immunity that lasts decades. Absolutely. And I've even seen, Kelly, as well, I've seen where, you know, there's been, um, I think in some of the undercover videos at the vaccination centers, okay, you know, they've asked um, how long have I, but I've had COVID, so I've, I've already got immunity. And they'll say, well, we don't know how long that, that lasts. And then, then that person will then ask the, vaccine, the, the person uh, doing the vaccine, well, how long does it last with the vaccine? Well, we don't know. So it's we don't know versus we don't know. And this is the, this right. is the crooked logic that we've got going on at the moment, haven't we? It, it's, exactly. Know? And we're seeing now, unfortunately, but as com totally predicted by myself and others, you are seeing what we call breakthrough cases. People who are vaccinated um, are far, far, far more likely, uh, probably 10 times more likely uh, based on most recent studies to come down with one of the variants than anybody who had and recovered from. And we seem to be, uh, some of the early data around, you know, this Delta variant, et cetera, it seems to be suggesting that, doesn't it? From what oh, I can oh, say. Without um, a question. And it makes, and, and from a scientific perspective, that's what you'd anticipate because when you get the vaccine, to be, you know, to make it super simple, when you get the vaccine, you develop antibodies to a very, very specific one single spike protein. That's what you develop those antibodies to. When you have COVID itself, you get sick with the virus you develop antibodies to the entire virus, not just that single spike protein, but to all the components. You develop antibodies to every single part of it. So think viruses mutate, all viruses mutate, okay? And COVID-19 mutated. And there's no question that when it mutates, that spike protein has a high risk of mutating it such that the antibodies you got from that vaccine don't recognize it anymore. Unlike the people who had COVID-19 actually had the real virus, they have some antibodies that might not recognize that um, mutated spike, but they got plenty of other antibodies that recognize the other parts of it that didn't mutate. And that's why they don't get sick. Which goes back to your quote, which is where I actually got your details from originally, which is this, you know, this, this, cra this crazy world we're in in terms of the science where, you know, I understood science that it mutates into a less dangerous strain, doesn't it? Yeah. And for some reason, this, for some reason, this isn't because we're rewriting science. That's basically seems to be almost seems to be the argument from that side. And this, this is where it sort of almost just, it just gets, um, um, it just becomes lunacy, doesn't it? With some of the, it, the yeah, arguments it, around this. Yeah, and the, the, and this this constant fear mongering, uh, what I call the fear porn that they're peddling, um, which is that oh my gosh, we got the new you know the Delta variant, and then and then just when you thought you were screaming towards Epsilon, they came out with Delta Plus, which is inexplicable. But in any event, um, <laughs> I digress. Uh, but the idea that people should have this tremendous fear of these variants. And what I've said is the, is the truth, the reality of virology is that viruses mutate. 
all viruses mutate. And as they do, they do two things with, I could say rare exception, it's really unheard of exception. They do two things. They become more contagious, more transmissible, just as the Delta variant clearly has done. But the other thing they do at the same time and what they won't tell you on the BBC or, or on the mainstream media is the other thing they do as they mutate is they become less lethal, less, yeah, yeah. less capable of causing severe illness. They do two things. They become more contagious and less lethal. And that's the reality. And to leave that bit out, that second part out, again, talk about intellectual dishonesty. You know, it's everyone's running around with their hair on fire talking about how contagious the Delta variant is. And I'm saying, yeah, tell them the other part. Tell them the other yeah, part. And also, and also, Kelly, what seems to be happening is it's a suggestion that, which may or may not be true, which it affects younger people. Well, it doesn't matter if it affects right. younger people. Again, going back to your point, if it's less deadly. I mean, in actual fact, we know we know where young people have had COVID, they've been at virtually no risk of death. If this is even less dangerous, we don't need to worry about them having it, you know? So it's it. this is how things are being manipulated. And it's quite, you know, on the fear porn stuff, if we're talking about children, et cetera, you can see how that works. It's literally leading the witness a little bit, isn't it? By only providing this part of it. And on the face of it, you go, oh, actually that looks a bit worried about that. And actually, the reality is it's there's not anything to be worried about with that. Exactly. And there's always some sensational, sensational um, you know, headline. Uh, I read an article. Absolutely. Yeah. Said, you know, the Delta variant is, is, is masquerading with different symptoms than the previous variants. So then you read the article and it says people who get the Delta variant, particularly younger children, are more likely to have symptoms of runny nose and sore throat as an ah tricky virus masquerading as a common cold uh you yeah. know, or, or as hay fever in july exactly. in the exactly yeah, masquerading <laughs> as, as mild allergies wow that's a you know sneaky virus no it, but yeah. it, it comes after this sensational headline that is meant to induce fear it is meant to compel people to take a particular action, in this case, get the vaccine, uh, lest you, you know, fall prey to this highly, highly contagious thing. And I, I think that when you start to see that, it is going to end up doing a huge disservice, has done a huge disservice to public health, because number one, it drives more vaccine hesitancy uh, overall. And I fear that people will take their concern about these vaccines and incorrectly um, apply that to other vaccinations and say, wow, if we're seeing all of these serious side effects or, or these are actually dangerous or we're seeing an impact on fertility, you know, maybe I shouldn't have my child vaccinated for polio or chickenpox or whatever else. And that would be a tragedy in and of itself. Likewise, God help public health uh, officials when they try to raise the flag again and get people to do something um, because people have largely blocked them out. 
um, not only is there a, you know, some reality to the concept of what I call crisis fatigue, that people are just done with it. They're just done with being locked in their house. They're done with being controlled. They're done with being told that the sky is falling and that their children must stay home or they can't go to work or whatever else it is. So there's crisis fatigue, but there's also that people are seeing enough flip-flopping and changing of the narrative, you know, masks are on, masks are off, masks are on, masks are off, uh, that they have, have lost an element of confidence in public health. And again, that is a very dangerous place to be because, it, you know, I can guarantee, I don't know what the next crisis will be, but I guarantee there will be a next crisis. And we need the public to be willing to listen to us uh, when that time comes. Absolutely, Kelly. And I think that's, yeah. So I think, I mean, hopefully from our perspective, I think we sort of almost look to America, you know, because you've got, um, you, you, there is there is a little, you know, because I think probably because of Trump, there is an alternative view. I mean, we're, we're in a terrible situation here, Kelly, politically, in that we've got, you know, we, I mean, you know, without being too conspiratorial, you know, the other major party, the Labour Party, the virtually like controlled opposition. I mean, it's it's like the, the, it's almost like they're throwing the next election because they're literally, you know, if anything, if they're not agreeing with the government, they probably go even further than the government. Yeah. So there's no real option here. And I think hopefully what we do sort of look at it is is that actually, if there can be some change over in America, that hopefully that enables some change elsewhere in in europe and i think there is some some good signs i think in in some european countries that they're pushing the narrative too hard particularly in france over the last few days etc yeah. so hopefully that will make a difference but it's it's been really interesting and and i think it will be good kelly to you know for for us for me to get this out and actually the good thing is on the podcast is there isn't the sort of same level of censorship so it's a, it, it, it enables you to sort of get out possibly to some people who wouldn't necessarily see the other side of it um, well, well feel free to share it uh, far and wide as I, I told you uh, when we entered into this um, there was no topic that was off uh, off limits for me um, I will field questions on all things and uh, I'm the first to acknowledge or, or to change my tune if I uh, in the face of new data that leads me to believe that uh, that I've um, come to the wrong conclusion uh, you know, initially. Um, so there's nothing, I think that the worst thing we can do is stop the conversation. The worst thing we can do is act as if there are not alternative views out there. And unfortunately, I think what's actually happened is it, it's, the, it's the opposite. And it's almost like the other side, for want of a better expression, it seems to settle the science very, very early, despite yeah. there being question marks all the way throughout in terms of, you know, it's a, it's a new virus. It's a new vaccine. We don't really know all of this stuff, but they seem to have settled very early on. This is the plan regardless. So I think, you know, hopefully with, you know, with with the um, uh, with the case you're involved in over there, it's things like that we need to be successful to try and change the censorship. That's a big part of it. I think the mainstream news is clearly a big part of it. And I think it's been really interesting going through all of these um, subjects that we've gone through and seen it from uh, 
from your perspective and keep me updated on the, the court I, I will, case, I etc. Um, the, only, the only social media platform that I'm on, by the way, um, is, is Twitter. Um, I'm at Dr. Kelly Victory uh, and I yeah. do post updates there um, on the lawsuit and we'll continue to do that. And in the, and I will continue to try to get uh, a balanced, sensible, well-reasoned approach out there. Uh, and I appreciate that, you know, you using your platform to, to help me to do that. So feel free to share it and I'll keep you in oh, the loop. Absolutely, I'll share it. And if you want a copy of the <laughs> recording or all Good of luck. that kind of stuff, happy to do it. If you just, you know, with your, with the, um, uh, uh, the your Twitter address and all that kind of stuff, just send me a quick email because I'll put it onto the notes sure. that go with the podcast, etc. But it's Perfect. been a pleasure 